0: Hemlock Knots. Cracking the restoration's toughest subjects through rational, balanced analysis of source material.
1: Welcome to episode number two of the Hemlock Knots podcast. Dustin, what are we talking about today?
0: We have analyzing LDS source material. This is really a simple approach to understanding sources of course, we're approaching LDS sources, but anyone that wants to be a amateur historian needs to understand these simple basic principles.
1: Absolutely, this stuff's super important. And you know, the Hemlock Knots website is going to be diving into the quality of the source material, in addition to just providing the quotes and and who said it. Um, so, really, what this is all about is teaching everybody to take a look at certain things. When you stumble across a church history document or any historical document we should be training ourselves to look at five main things. There are other factors as well, but these five things we're going to talk about today and why they're important when you're studying church history stuff. Um, For example, latency. When was it said? That's super important, right? Proximity. Were they even present to hear it? Or did they hear it from somebody else? Or was it second, third hand? Verbatim. What level of detail goes into the conversations that they're recollecting? And we'll talk about if that's even possible, you know? Origination has to do with are we talking about original documents here, copies of copies, um, recreated copies of something later on? Um, That's super important. And also, we need to ask ourselves the question of, you know, people do have motives. What are the motives of somebody creating a document, signing an affidavit, or um, stating something publicly?
0: Yeah. You know, Mark, uh, one thing that I really love about this episode, you know, I was joking with you before that, you know, people won't necessarily go, oh, I can't wait to dive into episode two because we're not actually looking at any juicy sources or anything like that. So there's no immediate oh, appeal there. We'll but this, is, oh, this is so important because well, oh, you, you have some teed up. OK, so I guess I should <laughs> pull back on that. Well, we're going to look at stuff. But uh this is so important because every person, you know, we receive information from all over the place. And of course, you know, our our a really hot topic of, or hot tagline of fake news that's been going around for a while. It's so important to learn how to be discerning, and everyone talks about that. But what I haven't seen when everyone talks about, oh, be discerning, fake news, blah, 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 are these five points, you know, these five points don't come up enough when we're talking to each other or when we're listening It whether it's from news or whatever, because uh, for, when we hear the news, as an example, we're hearing history in the moment, or history in the making. So, what's news today becomes history yesterday. And so, we're looking at history yesterday. So, this was the news way forever ago. So, this is what's so important about this topic. We have to be discerning about the information that we're receiving.
1: Absolutely. That's yes. my soapbox. Yep, because we're dealing with human nature here. Um, and so, we're, let's dive into the first one, which is latency. And we're going to talk about, we're going to break them down into columns good, questionable, not necessarily false, not necessarily true, but you should question it. And then, the least credible or the things that you should be suspect of. We're going to break all of these topics down into three different categories. So um, kick us off, Dustin, with latency. Explain what that is and what we're looking for as the most credible way.
0: So latency, that's a fancy term. Just think of, uh, as, as Mark said on the previous slide, when was it said, or in other words, when was it said in relation to when the thing happened? How close are those things? The thing happens here, then I talk about it. The thing happens here, I talk about it a million years later. That's latency. Uh, so I tell something, I tell, I'll tell Mark about my day yesterday. That's a, that's latent by one day. I tell Mark about something that happened to me 10 years ago, that's latent by 10 years. So this is really important because human memory is only so good <laughs> for remembering this stuff.
1: Absolutely. And so the most credible thing in, in regards to latency is if something happened today or last week, that's a lot more credible, right? So, contemporary stuff is written or spoken within the current time frame of the events being discussed right it does not indicate truthfulness of the statement that's not that because something's contemporary doesn't mean it's true you have to be careful with that
0: right but, so a great example ahead. for that mark is is uh, I read I read your journal entry from five years ago and Mark <laughs> says this happened and then I say oh my gosh this happened well no Mark said this happened. That's the difference. You know, I read that, but it's, but it's in a journal entry. Mark wrote it down. He wrote it down the day of, he wrote it the 23rd of May, 2016. That was five years ago. And it was today and he wrote it and it was day of. So there's no latency there, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he was there. It was firsthand. He heard, he heard the person say it. It's like, no, Mark, what's true is that he wrote it down day of. And that Mark said, it. it's not true that the thing
1: happened. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's the most credible stuff is if it's contemporary that can help you establish credibility. It doesn't mean something's true. Be careful with that. But that. The, the less credible one, not the least, but the less credible one that you should always be discerning about and ask yourselves is early recollections. Stuff that was recorded in the last, I don't know, a few, few years, maybe tops or a few months. I, I label everything as orange as an early recollection if it's two years old or later. Anything longer than two years, I'm going to call that a late recollection. Um, so this is uh, this is something two we should years older all just, or
0: sooner. You mean right?
1: Yeah, two years older or sooner. Yeah, excuse me. So, and then talk about that last column there, Dustin. What are we? What should we be highly suspect of in regards to this stuff?
0: Well, I, yeah, late recollections. That's that divines itself, right? Oh, this happened ten years ago. I'm going to tell you about this story that happened ten years ago, and I'm going to tell you what the person said. I'm going to tell you what I said to the person. I'm going to tell you all these things that happened. Uh, that's fine and dandy, uh, especially if it's, you know, if if it's the person who that experienced it. Like, if I'm going to write in my journal today about stuff that happened five years ago, well, you know, I'm a firsthand witness to my own life. Okay, great. But do I really remember it that great?
1: Exactly. Yeah. And you have a lot of people in the Kirtland and Nauvoo period who were Young kids or teenagers that go on later on in Utah to, for example, go on record of saying, I remember this, you know, I'm 42 years old right now. So if I have a 35 year recollection, am I expected to to really have a great memory of, of what happened when I was seven? I could re- I remember little flashes here and there, but we have to look at that totality of, of latency and and use it as a credibility booster or... Know. When I'm telling
0: friends stories about my teenage years, I I just remember little bits and pieces. I fill in those bits and pieces with, you know, I'm a storyteller. I'm not, uh, you know, you can you can call that a liar. I'm not trying to lie. I'm just trying to tell the story. I'm trying to convey accurate information, filling in the gaps with a little bit of flair and exaggeration, because I, you know, like to make people laugh or whatever. Right. Uh, that's just my personality style, and that's that's a pretty human thing to do. And I do it subconsciously. I don't go into it planning, thinking. I'm going to tell the story about what happened. I'm 16 and I'm going to, I don't have enough juicy details. So I'm going to add this detail. No, I just tell the story and I just fill in the blanks where I can fill in the blanks. And that just happens naturally.
1: Right. And so we're going to move on from latency, but I wanted to show you guys four quick examples of where latency can be dicey. It can be tricky. You have to be the most
0: important thing. So I don't know if we can stress. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. So you have to talk about, okay, when was the record created? That's one form of latency, but also. When were the events that are being described, when did those happen? And so you've got some mixed up things here. For example, here's an example from Lorenzo D. Watson, 1842, July 30th. It's a contemporary account. He's writing a letter, right? He's the nephew of Emma Smith. He's writing a letter to Joseph Smith on July 30th, 1842. It was published in the Times and Seasons shortly after. However... In the letter, what is he talking about? Is he talking about stuff that happened today? No, he's referring back to one year ago and his memories there. So here we have an example of a contemporary letter that has one year recollections in it. So it's a mix, it's a hybrid of, of latency, right? And so we have to take these factors in as well. I'll show you a couple more. Sidney Rigdon, 1864, June. This is a contemporary source. He's publishing it in a newspaper. He just wrote it to the editor and they published it within a couple of days. But he's going back two to four years and recollecting everything. So be careful with that as a contemporary source. Austin Cowles, he, his affidavit that's really popular as far as, uh, you know, he was, Austin Cowles was one of the, the personalities that was involved in the uh, the Nauvoo Expositor. He's going back 10 months and swearing and testifying in his affidavits of, of stuff that happened. So you have to weigh those things, right? Um, and then the last example, Sylvester Emmons, Emmons, he was the, um, some people believe he was the writer of the Nauvoo Expositor. He was definitely the editor and the publisher. He did all the typesetting and he set it all up. So, you know, his name goes on the Navu Expositor. He is going anywhere from four months to 26 months back in history to describe all of this stuff. So these are these are recollections. Some are late, some are early recollections. But people come all the time with, you know, I'll ask the question sometimes. Well, well show me all the contemporary stuff about Joseph, um, so contemporary sources about him doing this and this and this. And it's always Navu Expositor. Not a contemporary source, at least not a pure contemporary source. Anything to add, Dustin?
0: No, that, that nails it for me.
1: Yep. Take the next one.
0: Okay, so when we're talking about proximity, we have, you know, he he said, she said issue. How close was the source or the person to what, what the thing happened? You know, so you're talking about this thing that happened. Did you see it? Did your mom see it? Did your brother see it? Did your friend see it? Did you just hear about it in a newspaper? Uh, how close was the was I to the thing that I'm talking about? So that I like that's why I, I personally like saying this is the he said she said problem because uh, stuff starts being spouted as reputable just because uh, somebody said it. But who said it? You you heard it from me, but did I see it? You know that's that's kind of what we're talking about here. Proximity. How
1: close was I? Absolutely. Uh, Obviously, first hand is the best. The next best is second hand, especially if that person would have been in a time and a place to have been able to hear a second hand account within reasonable time frames. Third hand plus, throw it out. You know what? These types of witnesses in a court of law just get tossed out by any judge and jury for the most part. Once you get past second hand witnesses, um, it gets really, really dicey. It's the telephone game, right? You can whisper it so many times and that story gets passed around and you all know how that ends, right? All right, so let's move on to the next one. This is a super important one called verbatim. So this has to do with how much detail goes into the recollection or the conversation that's being cited. Now, this is a dicey one because we have science you know, and studies and a lot of academics have tried to answer this question. What's the human brain capable of in regards to remembering detailed conversation? Not much. The human brain is, is very, very weak in regards to memorizing exact things people said. And even the main points people said, even 20 seconds later, two minutes later, let alone 30, 40, 70 years later, it's just impossible. So there's scribal verbatim, which is the most credible. In other words, if Joseph Smith was talking at a meeting and there was somebody taking meeting notes, for example, those types of things are the most credible because they would have been in a position to be writing down exactly what he said, or at least, you know, to some degree sentences here and there shorthand. So those are the most Those are the ones you want to look for the most. Are they writing it down in real time as the person speaking? If there's a discourse in the Grove, for example, and you have four people writing their notes down, those are the best type. The less credible ones are phrase verbatim. So, Dustin, what's the difference between phrase verbatim and like a dialogue verbatim?
0: Well, we see phrase verbatim really frequently um, in, well, you mentioned it like these, like discourses from Joseph Smith speaking at the temple, speaking at the groves, spoke at this conference, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you have, let's say, four people that were there, and they all recorded uh, what they heard. You see this phrase verbatim because when you compare the four different ones, you see each of them basically kind of chunking out sections of what he talked about, right? They can't get everything down. He talks too fast, and it's just not—it's not possible to write it down with your hand moving at that speed so you try and get a gist you know people that are good note takers say okay what are we talking about now we're talking about this so then they t- write that topic or this phrase and so they're getting chunks of the concept more than the actual words that he that he said so it's this more conceptual
1: approach than than actual word set approach yep and so dialogue verbatim Buyer beware. Like, you want to be super careful with this because, A, it's impossible. It's been proven impossible by so many um, people doing studies. And, uh, you know, here's an example like John C. Bennett, for example, um, and Elizabeth Brotherton, or, or Martha Brotherton, excuse me. So, they, when they wrote their affidavits and they were trying to, you know, talk about what happened in Nauvoo, like in this example here, it's a 16 month recollection, but he's quoted as saying, you know, 29% of that quote is him actually quoting Joseph Smith's dialogue word for word. And he's saying stuff like, knowing that I had much influence with Mr. Rigdon's family, Joe Smith said to me one day last summer, quote, if you will assist me in procuring Nancy as one of my spiritual wives, I will give you $500 on the bet and the best lot on main street. I mean, like there's no chance he was recollecting all of those details from that conversation. He would have been better off using phrase verbatim, you know, and just summarizing the gist of what it was instead of trying to get into quoting people.
0: Yeah, you lose some credibility uh, when you do that, and I I do it a lot too. And I have some good friends that are, are kind enough to call me out on it and say, "Well, are you sure you want to say that, Dustin? Because you you might be more credible if you." And I'm like, okay, let me let me back up and say, it was you know here was the gist because I can't say all these things that someone said because there's just no way I never never remember. I don't remember, I don't remember uh, everything that you said. 20 seconds ago, 30 seconds ago. I know that you talked about John C. Bennett's letter and, you know, or whatever, you know, but I can't say, oh, these are all the words Mark said, even though I'm sitting here listening to you. It's just, it's not possible.
1: Yeah, it's not possible. And it's been proven time and time again. So don't think it's possible. So if you have a long affidavit, you know, that says, you know, Joseph said to me and then a paragraph of his quoted text just throw it out. It's garbage. It's, it's impossible, but you might be able to glean from that the gist of the conversation. So that's all we're saying is look for the gist of what could be true with some of these recollections, but you know, don't, don't quote it word for word, for sure. Um, Let's talk about origination next. How original is the source being quoted? If we're referring to a document, right? Is that an original document or is it a copy of a document? Or is it a copy of a copy of something and doesn't an original exist? Those are the big questions in regards to origination.
0: Yeah, and even worse, the very worst case is—I mean, you have copies of copies as the worst, but uh, you could potentially even add um, a mention of a document that doesn't exist.
1: <laughs> That's the worst. Yeah, and,
0: but there—but it's used. It's used as like, well, so and so said that this document. They saw this document. Now, now it's—it it can be as we go through each of these, it can be valuable in trying to paint some historical pictures because I've definitely done that like like uh, a potential missing times and seasons article, June 15th, 1844, there is no record of that document, but there is record of people talking about it. So that's, that's valuable, but it's not valuable if I say it did exist and this is, you know, I, I can't do that. And and so, yeah, we're going to dive into these, but this this one's a lot of fun because we run into this problem a
1: lot. Uh, uh, Especially, and the Joseph Smith papers has been awesome because it lets you look at the source material, document notes, And we'll talk about how to use that resource it's really super helpful before you read the stuff and decide whether to believe it or not just just look at the notes in there so the most credible with origination obviously original documents right are they available can you can we analyze the handwriting of the person to verify it you know can we take a look at the paper and the ink can someone who's specializing in historical documents authenticate this in any way right um, and usually, uh, you know these types of documents should be open for the public to view and to to analyze themselves, and those are the most credible. Right. My and favorite
0: so- here is, well, I say my favorite. The one that's the most <laughs> frequent in the Joseph Smith papers project is this next column, the copy, the edit, the rewrite. And that and I we don't know for sure. We have suppositions and claims of why it happened. but here's here's an example. Uh, Joseph's journal, you know, or diary, whatever, and all of those who acted as scribes for him. We had so many uh, letters from Joseph. We have all this correspondence from Joseph. Well, we don't have ac- those actual letters in most cases, um, at least when you go to the Joseph Smith papers. What you have is the fact that uh, somebody wrote down the content of the letter in the in the book, in the, in the Joseph Smith, uh, you know, journal. And so it's like, here's the letter. Well, it's like, well, that's the that's a rewrite, a handwritten copy of the letter. We're not looking at the actual letter.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, last year there was there was a bunch of stuff that came out of the Nauvoo period. And and one of the big, you know, smoking guns to some historians was, oh, see, this, you know, Newell K. Whitney revelation that was given to him about Sarah Ann Whitney and Joseph and all this stuff. Well, well, people need to pump the brakes and slow down and just realize, hey, this document in and of itself, let me describe to you what it actually is. It's a 70-year recollection. It's fourth hand at minimum, at best. Right. It's a third removed copy. It's a copy of a copy of a copy, and there's no original copy available, and there's no verifiable handwriting anywhere on the document. Right, and so and so people who use this as proof of anything should really just reanalyze how they're looking at these documents and whether or not they're putting enough critique into them before they just you know swallow it hook, line, and sinker. Right?
0: Yeah, I got a two-word summary for that:
1: <laughs> fairy tale. Oh, I thought you were going to make me you know have a bleep sound put over. <laughs> <it>. All right. <laughs> well, maybe next time. Talk about hey, Dustin. What are your, what's your deal? Uh, What's your understanding of incentives? This is like our last one that we're going to cover of the big five. There are some other factors that play into it. Like what about incentives? Do people have motivations for doing certain things? Well, This is,
0: in my opinion, this is one of the most overlooked features for sources source material, because we don't think about it naturally. I mean, a lot of times I didn't even think about a lot of this stuff most of the time, but if I did think about it, I would think about firsthand, secondhand, stuff like that. But incentives didn't think about too often until people started asking me, um, you know, it says, what did they have to gain? Well, I guess you might even say, did they have something to gain? So that we ask ourselves, was there possibly anything to gain? If there was nothing to gain, totally fine. But I need to start asking, was there anything to gain or lose? by saying this, making this statement, you know, publishing or or, or submitting this affidavit or whatever it is, um, gain or lose, you know, am I going to lose my head if I don't do this? Or, you know, if I do this, am I going to gain the world? Am I going to gain money, power, prestige, uh, acceptance, whatever, whatever, whatever? It's so important because we will always see it be a factor in sources that come every
1: now and again. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, the, the middle ground here, that's less credible, use, use some discernment. Are they getting any social gain, right? Like, are they trying to bolster themselves as, as more righteous? Are they just part of the me too crowd that wants to say, yeah, I remember that too. Um uh, it's okay but just use caution when you have that. For example, in this example, Lorenzo Snow is saying 56 years later, you know what, there's no man on the planet that knew that had a more perfect knowledge about polygamy than I did. And this is of course after everyone else had already died off. So, I mean those those are examples of social gain, right? Inserting himself into the the limelight of of someone who's credible in that regard. Um the worst is by far those who are trying to avoid punishment. Now, this is psychologically one of the greatest motivators for someone to lie. Right. For, exa- for example, there are, uh, you know, when someone's indicted or whatever, they're, they're charged with a crime, they come into the police station for questioning. And some if someone's guilty of going to jail for 30, 40, 50 years, do you really think they're going to tell the truth talking to those police? <laughs> like, are society's riddled with people lying to avoid going to jail for breaking the law, for example. And some of these teachings that creep into early Mormonism, I'll have to remind you, some of them were illegal. These are legal matters in addition to spiritual matters. And so you have to ask yourself, why is this person putting together this statement? Are they trying to avoid going to, to prison or losing family members or whatever? Um, those are the, the, the least credible, I think, because you've got a high, high, high motivation to lie in those circumstances. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So wrapping it up, we talked about these five things. Keep them in in mind as you're analyzing any of the source material. Latency. When was it said? Proximity. Were they present? Verbatim. What level of detail? Origination. Is this an original copy or an original document or a copy of a copy? And then incentives. Why would they say it? What do they have to gain from making that public declaration or that statement? Dustin, do you want to wrap it up for us?
0: Yeah. uh, Did we want to talk at all about um amalgamations or stuff like that yeah
1: yeah so that was that was one of those other factors that we didn't include here but go ahead and mention any other uh factors in regards to
0: so when we're looking at stuff, um, and, and this can this can be for any historical source, but we just see it so frequently in, in church history, and that's, of course, what we're looking at mainly, but uh, we want to talk about true principles here. Uh, we have four people that attend a lecture or a sermon. They all write some notes, and then we all read those notes. Well, they all have their own perspective. They all have things they wrote, and you'll see that they each wrote a phrase that Joseph said, for example. They wrote it differently, four different ways. They all caught it, and and you see that they captured this exact same idea, but you see that they worded it four different ways. So an amalgamation is when someone comes in later and says, well, I'm going to attempt to make sense of all of these four accounts and combine them together. Well, as we talked about earlier, you want to make sure you read all of those accounts so you get a gist of how much detail each person tried to include, what elements they caught, what they missed. Um, uh, A lot of it's shorthand. And so usually you can tell what word they were trying to go for, but you can't always, sometimes they literally just put a letter for the shorthand and you're like, Oh, what, uh, what did they say? And and some people will take a crack at it and submit something that won't be necessarily accurate. Uh, So that's important because it happens so frequently here with our history.
1: Yeah, so uh, we, well, let's talk briefly about what are what are some of the most credible sources that you like to go to that are a little bit more reliable than others, and what do you look for as far as red flags, as far as finding material to make a claim or to research, right? Well, I love finding letters.
0: Um, that if if you can find the actual copy of the letter, like I said in Joe Smith Journal, you have written um, written copies or handwritten rewrite copies in the journal instead of the actual letter. Occasionally, you see the actual letter, which is I prefer that personally got you got uh, journals and newspapers of course but you always have to you know well you can speak to some of those things that what like well tell us some of the pluses and minuses of newspapers and journals
1: so for me um it takes guts to publish something and have it go out to twenty thousand people right so if you are blatantly lying and all of your neighbors know it they're going to call you out on it there's going to be a rebuttal in the coming issues of that newspaper right so it does take a lot of guts to go public now there were people that did lie with newspaper articles for slanderous reasons and things like that so it's not perfect and people can use the press for really destructive means however you know if someone's going to come out and say something in a newspaper and it goes unchecked for all of the newspaper articles after that you can you can guess that it's pretty well established and it's not going to create a lot of ruffles
0: right in fact we have a lot of examples in church history where things were published in the newspaper and when And they were challenged immediately after. Now, does that mean that the thing in the newspaper was not true? No, but you see that it was at least challenged. If it goes unchallenged by anybody, then that means nobody seemed to have a real problem with it. And, you know, like we said, saying discerning truth versus just discerning events. Like someone challenged, someone said it, therefore it's true. No, someone challenged it, therefore it's not true. No, it just means that someone said it and someone challenged it. But when someone says it, publicly in front of 20,000 people in a newspaper or periodical or whatever and nobody seems to have a problem with it then that's that is really telling
1: right yeah, so I this is a few of the ideas. There's a lot we could go into here. We're pushing on, you know, 26 minutes on this episode, but this is important to have as episode two because all of the dozens of episodes we're going to get into, we're going to get into the source material and we're going to throw out terms like latency, proximity, verbatim, origination incentives. And we'll try to explain what these are as we go, but uh, you will hear us talking a lot about the quality of the source material behind every argument.
0: Yeah, and we have, so for worse sources, that means hearsay rumors, uh, these recollections that come a long time later, or affidavits that you find have some sort of incentive, uh, negative incentive involved, that co- like coercion, for example. Uh, so, so as you pulled all those examples up on the screen, um, we saw the hemlock knots rating system. If you want to show that real briefly, and we'll but we'll see this in every episode. But you you see these color codes and whatnot you'll see that on every single source in on the hemlock knots website so that you can keep track of how potentially credible it was versus how potentially um, sketchy it is as a, as a true source
1: right and we do our best to be accurate with these if you notice something else about a source we may have missed let us know but you know hemlock is a community resource of source material so people can come and have an easier time dissecting some of the details behind these sources so absolutely We'll hope that you'll go to hemlockknots.com next time you're studying something that's really you know juicy or difficult to digest in regards to church history. There's a lot of viewpoints on it. But most of all, I would ask that everybody on this show, if you have a favorite historian, a favorite author, a favorite blogger who's out teaching these things, hold these people accountable to telling you the full story about the quality of the sources they're bringing in. Most authors and historians they like to leave out some of these inconvenient truths in regards to what they're about to quote. and Right, because so, it
0: might mess up a narrative, right?
1: Oh, it'll mess up a narrative very quickly if you have really bad source material. Yeah, so that's it. We hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Let us know in the comments below what your questions are, what you guys have noticed in, uh, in church history as well, and how to discern the sources the best we can.
0: Thanks, guys. See you next time. Thanks for listening. If you like this show, share it with your people. Join the conversation on Facebook, YouTube, or
1: HemlockKnots.com, where you'll find show notes and source material for these subjects and much, much more.